Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The violence of this disease was such that the sick communicated it to the healthy who came near them just as a fire catches anything dry or oily near it. And it went further. To speak to or go near the sick brought infection and a common death to the living. And moreover, to touch the clothes or anything else the sick had touched or worn gave the disease to the person touching. Such fear and fanciful notions took possession of the living that almost all of them adopted the same cruel policy, which was to entirely avoid the sick and everything belonging to them. By doing so, each one thought he would secure his own safety. In this suffering and misery of our city, the authority of human and divine laws almost disappeared. For, like other men, the ministers and executors of the laws were all dead or sick or shut up with their families, so that no duties were carried out. Every man was, therefore, able to do as he pleased. One citizen avoided another. Hardly any neighbour travelled about others. Relatives never or hardly ever visited each other. Moreover, such terror was struck into the hearts of men and women by this calamity, that brother abandoned brother, uncle his nephew, sister her brother, and wife her husband very often. Even worse, and nearly incredible, is that fathers and mothers refused to see and tend their children, as if they had not been theirs. Since the sick were thus abandoned by neighbours, relatives, and friends, while servants were scarce, a habit sprang up which had never been seen before. Beautiful and noble women, when they fell sick, did not scruple to take a young or old manservant, whoever he might be, and with no sort of shame expose every part of their bodies to these men as if they had been women, for they were compelled by the necessity of their sickness to do so. This, perhaps, was a cause of looser morals in those women who survived. The plight of the lower and most of the middle classes was even more pitiful to behold. Most of them remained in their houses, either through poverty or in hopes of safety, and fell sick by the thousands. Since they received no care and attention, almost all of them died. Many ended their lives in the streets, both at night and during the day. And many others who died in their houses were only known to be dead because the neighbours smelled their decaying bodies. Dead bodies filled every corner. The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, 1353.
Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 4.7, Joanna of Naples, Return of the Queen. Last time, we took Joanna from the murder of her husband, through civil war and war with Hungary, then trial and acquittal by the papacy, and ended with her return to Naples alongside her new husband. It had been a whirlwind three years or so for the young Queen of Naples, still in her early 20s, and things were not about to get any easier. Indeed, though she now sat in triumph back in her capital city, her kingdom still faced three terrible foes. The occupying Hungarian army, the Durazzos, and of course, the Black Death. As she formulated her plans to win back her ravaged kingdom, she then began to suspect that another danger, one far closer to home, would threaten to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. Your generous support is so appreciated and I can't thank you all enough. If you too would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. As I speak these words to you in late 2021, the world is going through the worst viral epidemic in a century. Over the last two years, around 5 million people around the world have died, with COVID-19 affecting every aspect of our lives. We all now know what it's like to live with the spectre of viral death all around us. But this is nothing like what happened in Europe, Asia and North Africa in the 14th century with the outbreak of bubonic plague most popularly known as the Black Death. It first landed in Europe on board a Genoese ship that docked on Sicily, an island, of course, over which Joanna still claimed queenship, in October 1347. The sailors on board had what one chronicle called, quote, sickness clinging to their very bones. This disease had already ravaged Asia, and once it made landfall, it quickly spread. The death toll would never be known for sure but it is thought that anywhere between 75 and 200 million people died of the disease in just four years. Just to put that awful number into some context, COVID-19 has killed around 6.5% of the global population. Black Death killed probably between a quarter and a third of everyone in the world, and that's including people in the New World that weren't affected. In Naples, it's estimated that deaths reach 50%. And there are reports of whole villages that were wiped out. The quote that I read to you at the beginning of the episode was written by Giovanni Boccaccio, who was in the Kingdom of Naples when the disease struck, and gives a vivid and horrifying vision of what life was like at that dreadful time. Every aspect of life was changed, and it caused enormous upheaval. The peasants' revolt in England and violent persecution of Jews in Germany are just two consequences of the pandemic which I would get into if this were a plague podcast, but fortunately for all of us, it isn't. But the context of the Black Death will affect everything that is going to happen over the rest of this episode, and across the next few. Even though I hadn't talked about it, the pandemic was already killing millions during the events of the last episode. 
The Hungarian invasion, the occupation and Joanna's grand entry into Avignon all occurred amid an apocalyptic plague. Joanna's journey to Avignon and the trial was not just at great risk in terms of what the verdict might be, but by travelling that far and encountering so many people, she was putting herself in great danger of catching the disease. Even though it was little understood at the time, people did know that close contact with others put you in danger. And over those days in Avignon, Joanna was surrounded by thousands of potential typhoid Marys. But as we've seen, and will continue to see, there are no lengths to which she would not go to protect and defend her sovereignty, her right to rule Naples. And of course, that's what she was doing right now, fighting to win back her kingdom from the forces of her brother-in-law. She divided her army, with her leading a small force to recapture the Castel Nuovo and the Castel dell'Oro, while her husband, Louis of Taranto, led a much larger force that marched out to take the fight to the Hungarians in the hinterland. Joanna's troops accomplished their mission very quickly, convincing the demoralised Hungarian garrisons to surrender. Louis was less successful. He won some early victories, but those only served to annoy the Hungarian king, who returned with reinforcements and pushed Louis back to the capital. This setback was then compounded by personal tragedy, as Joanna and Louis's newborn daughter died unexpectedly. These two events seem to have flipped a switch in Louis. Till now, he had played the role of dutiful husband, but it was all an act. He wanted to be king, and had no intention of playing second fiddle to his wife. So once he returned to Naples after those defeats, he arrested Joanna's loyal friend and chamberlain, Enrico Caracciolo, on trumped-up charges of committing adultery with the queen. Joanna had a bit of a reputation for extramarital dalliances from her first marriage, and there was a prejudice at the time against women who remarried. They were considered to be, according to Boccaccio, quote, concealing their itching lust and think they are more beautiful and beloved for having to please so often the various husbands of their frequent marriages. And the circumstances of their marriage didn't help her. Although the Pope had retroactively approved it, many still questioned its validity and the character of a woman who would commit such an act. Of course, few thought to question the character of a man who would do such a thing. Joanna, of course, virulently denied these claims of adultery, writing in a letter to the Pope, quote, I have never licentiously done anything derogatory to my husband's honour or forgotten either due to respect or submission to him. Indeed, the accusation was clearly rubbish, but it was carefully and cleverly propagated, using the stereotypes and prejudices of the time to paint a dirty picture. It was, in effect, a coup d'etat. While Joanna defended her honour, Louis seized total control of the army, while his ally, the Neapolitan banker Niccolo Acciaioli, used his wealth, influence and political acumen to take control of the instruments of government. This partnership was tremendously successful, and Joanna was sidelined and placed under effective house arrest. She was also powerless to save her chamberlain, who was executed for treasonous adultery, and could do nothing as her husband consolidated his power. We know how bad things were from a letter written by the Pope to Louis in November 1349. He accused Louis of being ungrateful to his wife, who had given him such an exalted position, and instead, quote, not merely do not treat her as behooves a wife and a queen, 
but scornfully containing the area of her prerogative, you have caused her to be reckoned rather a slave than a spouse. It is further reported that you have deprived her of the society and audience of her trusted servants, so that without your permission no one is allowed to speak with her. You have taken the royal seal and given it to the Bishop of Florence and certain others, who, it is said, in the face of the Queen's protest, and greatly to her prejudice, impudently seal letters of state containing all things, both important and unimportant, under her name and title. The chronicler Giovanni Villani goes further, accusing Louis of domestic violence. Quote, to the Queen he gave little honour, whether by his own fault, which was great, or by the Queen's. As though she were a common woman and in great insult to the crown, he beat her often. These were indeed dark days for Joanna. Not long after the death of their first child together, she became pregnant again and gave birth to another daughter, Frances. This only worsened Joanna's plight. Now she was seen to have failed to provide Louis with a son and heir. And then things got even worse. Her sister, Maria, had come back with her to Naples and demanded the rest of her dowry to pay for her upkeep. Joanna had no way of paying this money, so she was forced to refuse, enraging her sister. Therefore, when the King of Hungary, who, by the way, I'm just going to keep calling him that, not by his name of Louis, to avoid confusion with Louis of Taranto, offered to marry her. Now, the marriage between widow and the killer of her husband would seem a most unlikely pairing, not to mention that said man was at war with the widow's sister, but Maria was receptive to the idea. The match would make her a queen, and would legitimise the Hungarian king's claim and unite Naples, which had never been all that keen on Louis of Taranto. So now Joanna, locked in her own castle, with plague all around her, was threatened by her husband on one hand and her sister on the other. This was rock bottom. But help was at hand. Joanna had very few friends left in Naples, but she did have a very good one in Avignon, and plenty of loyalty back in Provence. She regularly wrote to the Pope and her people there, complaining of her treatment, and in July 1350, they came to her rescue. A small fleet full of Provencal soldiers arrived in Naples, bearing the colours of the Pope, commanded by Hugh, Count of Avellino, who the Pope had ordered to restore Joanna to her rightful place. Hugh was a wily fellow, and spread a rumour around Naples that Louis was trying to poison the Queen, and that his men were here to save her. He told Louis that if he did not surrender, then his own troops would take the city and hand it over to the Hungarians. If he were to cooperate, though, he, Hugh, would drive the invaders out of the kingdom. Louis, who had never been much of a general, capitulated, signing an edict that acknowledged Joanna's position as Queen of Naples and Countess of Provence, and acknowledging that while he had the title of king, it was in name only. Once more, Joanna's diplomatic skills had gotten her out of a tight spot. A deal was then signed with the Hungarians, with Joanna once again agreeing to go on trial for the murder of her husband. The terms were stark. If she were to be found guilty, she would be deposed, with the crown passing to Maria, and by extension the Hungarian king once they were married. If she were to be innocent, then the Hungarians had to leave. This seems like a huge risk, but actually, it was all just to save the face of the King of Hungary. The combined forces of papal opposition, the Black Death ravaging his army, and increased Neapolitan resistance 
meant that the whole endeavour was no longer worth it for him. To sweeten the deal, Joanna agreed, whichever way the verdict went, that he be paid a boatload of cash. All parties then decamped to Rome, at which point one final act of violence ended the whole business. The Pope had left secret instructions for Count Hugh to ensure the threat of Maria marrying the King of Hungary never again raised its head. Without consulting Joanna, Hugh had his son Robert abduct her and force her into marriage, thereby taking her off the diplomatic chessboard. Joanna was outraged at this. Though she was angry at her sister, she would never have agreed to her being treated in this way. This fury meant she looked the other way when her husband took revenge on Hugh for forcing his capitulation by stabbing him to death. Joanna's trial never actually happened. The Hungarians left of their own accord as the verdict was a foregone conclusion. So finally, by 1352, things finally appeared to have settled down. Louis and Joanna had reconciled and he appeared to be living by the terms of the agreement signed with the papacy. Joanna knew that working with him was the best way to proceed, despite his violent and controlling behaviour, not to mention his attempted coup. She needed a husband to lead her armies, and it was far easier to work with the one she had than to cause civil war by trying to dump him. This all meant that Joanna was finally willing to hold a dual coronation for him and her, officially investing him with the title of king, something she had fought hard for a first husband never to have. Moreover, such a coronation could be a moment of healing for a kingdom that was recovering from years of war and plague. No expenses would be spared for this august and royal occasion. Invitations were sent out to every major court in Italy, while a papal representative was requested to do the honours. There were pageants, jousts and other public entertainments in the days before the ceremony to get people in the mood. On the day itself, every noble in the land, and quite a few from abroad, flocked to the ancestral Taranto seat to see its scion crowned titular King of Naples alongside his wife. In the procession that followed, thousands crowded the streets and hung from balconies to see the royal couple. But this triumphant day was then tinged with tragedy. Once they returned to the Castel Nuovo, the king and queen were greeted by sobbing servants, informing them that their daughter Frances had died. Joanna may have finally secured herself in power, but with her only heir dead, she was to find, in the words of the immortal bard, that uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, especially if that number of heads were doubled. As you might imagine, after a decade of war and plague, Naples was not in great shape. It had lost half its population. Whole swathes of the countryside had been devastated by Hungarian troops. And a breakdown in law and order led to rampant banditry, as rogues demoralised soldiers and mercenaries pillaged at will. Joanna could not do much about the first two of these, but she prioritised reimposing law and order. She appointed a chief justice, basically a roving sheriff, and gave him 400 cavalry to ride around the kingdom. He pursued criminals, collected unpaid taxes, and basically re-established the old order. It is perhaps the most impressive feat of her queenship that just two years after retaking her kingdom, 
Naples was once again not only able to feed itself, but to export grain for profit. But good things rarely last for long in Naples. The peace treaty with Hungary meant two of her old frenemies were back in town, Louis of Durazzo and Robert of Taranto. If you remember, Louis of Durazzo was the younger brother of Charles, who the King of Hungary had executed for his part in the death of his brother, Andrew. Robert of Taranto was Joanna's brother-in-law, who had previously tried to force her to marry him. Both of these princes had fought with and against Joanna in various wars, and their arrival augured trouble ahead. For example, after failing to secure his old lands back, Louis of Durazzo became essentially a leader of bandits. And then there were the only so recently mended relations with her husband. On a personal level, they fell apart once again with the death of their daughter. Once again, she penned many letters to Avignon, complaining to the Pope about how he treated her. She complained of being repeatedly humiliated and anguished by him, and he was most likely violent to her as well. However, on a political level, their interests were still aligned. They both wanted a safe, stable Naples under their control, and for them to be the leaders of the Guelphic, or pro-papal party, in Italy. She was in no position to get rid of her husband, and he made no overt measure to overthrow his wife. So while the situation was, to say the least, unideal, Joanna seems to have decided to try and endure the personal trials for the greater good of the kingdom. And while she faced interference from her husband on many fronts, she was now able to do some actual ruling of Naples. Given the background of the plague, it is unsurprising, perhaps, that she focused on public health, gifting a hospital to the people of Naples, and decreeing that all doctors should offer to treat the poor for free. It wasn't exactly the NHS, but it was a far more generous provision of healthcare than many of her neighbours. Interestingly, Naples was also almost entirely unique in Europe, in that it conferred many medical licences to women. They were not permitted to treat men, but offered an excellent service to women, and it's speculated that this peculiar anomaly was entirely down to the fact that Naples was ruled, at the time, by a queen. She built churches and monasteries in the Angevin tradition, including the church of Santa Maria Incarnata in Naples. She hired the finest sculptors and painters to decorate her new buildings, luring them by promises of patronage on the scale of her grandfather, King Robert the Wise. She also encouraged literary figures to flock to the kingdom, the most famous being Giovanni Boccaccio. His most famous work, De Cameron, had been published in 1353 and was the medieval equivalent of a bestseller. He was enticed to Naples by Nicola Accioli, who offered him a position as his secretary. However, he was so mistreated by the jealous Grand Seneschal of Naples that Boccaccio left in disgust, despite Joanna's best efforts to bring him back. In 1352... Pope Clement VI died, ending his decade-long pontificate. He had been a great advocate for Joanna for the most part, and they had gotten to know each other well. His replacement, Innocent VI, was a stranger to her and totally different to his predecessor. Where Clement was outgoing, lavish and receptive to bribery, Innocent was a hard-nosed, honest type, determined to root out corruption. He was short-tempered and did not suffer fools. His appointment was largely down to Cardinal Talleyrand. He and Joanna had once been aligned, but his true allegiance lay with Durazzo family. This meant that Joanna needed a new advocate in Avignon, 
and found it in Cardinal Guy of Boulogne. The issue of her sister's marriage was a loose end that needed tying. Her most recent husband had recently died, and with her being the heir to the throne, she was back to being the most eligible bachelorette in Europe, and many ambitious men coveted her. Joanna wanted her to marry her brother-in-law, Philip, but opposition from Cardinal Talleyrand meant the Pope refused to grant dispensation while allowing advantageous marriages for all her internal rivals. The Durazzos, emboldened by papal favour, went on the offensive, hiring mercenaries and attacking internal enemies and taking castles. But their violence went too far, and Joanna's new friend, Cardinal Guy, managed to talk the Pope into condemning Louis of Durazzo, permitting the marriage of Philip to Joanna's sister, and supporting Joanna in a campaign to retake the fortresses lost to the rebels. An uneasy peace was brokered, with enough breathing room for Joanna to launch her reign's most important overseas military campaign. As we discussed in episode 4.5, the Kingdom of Sicily had once been part of the Kingdom of Naples, but had been lost to the Spanish Kingdom of Aragon in 1302. However, a minor, Frederick III, was currently on the throne, and a civil war broke out over who would have the regency. One side, led by two of the most important families on the island, appealed to Naples for aid, offering them the chance to regain the crown. Joanna did not have the money to finance an expedition, as she had been busy with the Durazzos, but did allow her husband's wealthy friend, Niccolò Accioli, to lead a private army on her behalf. He did a reasonably good job, and soon the Aragonese were on the ropes. And so now that she had peace at home, She set sail to the island and was officially crowned as Queen of Sicily alongside her husband at Messina, in the presence of almost every important noble family. The reintegration of Sicily had been a foreign policy goal that had eluded generations of Neapolitan kings, and none of them had really come close. It was a magnificent, if opportunistic, triumph, and did much to increase her prestige at home and abroad. But then, events in France upset the apple cart once more. After a black death enforced pause in hostilities, the Hundred Years' War heated up again in 1356. The two sides once more squared off in a major battle at Poitiers, and once again, our brave boys gave the French a damn good thrashing, capturing the French king and killing much of the nobility that had not perished at Cressy. Now this was bad for Joanna for two reasons. First, the King of France was her strongest international ally, aside from the papacy. And second, her county of Provence was inside French territory. The tumult caused by Poitiers meant that her borders were now under threat from English financed companies of private soldiers. These bands also made their way into Italy, and one of them, a Hungarian company, was hired by Louis of Durazzo, who was determined to make one last attempt to overthrow Joanna and Louis of Taranto. There followed not so much a fighting war as a bidding war, as each side kept making larger and larger offers to this band, who switched sides several times. They must have been laughing all the way to the bank. Eventually, though, in 1362, Joanna and her husband prevailed, and Louis of Taranto was finally forced to surrender. He was thrown in jail and died a few months later. But his wasn't the only major death that year. Over in Avignon, Pope Innocent died after a ten-year reign. 
This too would have been a relief to Joanna, as the two had not shared nearly as close a relationship as she had had with Clarence. And then, finally, a second wave of back death carried off none other than her husband, Louis. It is highly unlikely that Joanna would have long mourned her second husband, if at all. He had long resented his subservient position, and subjected her to a campaign of jealous abuse. After failing to overthrow her, he had nominally accepted his position as a non-ruling king, but still found every opportunity to demean and humiliate her. But they had, in later years, found a way of working together in the greater cause of Neapolitan unity and glory, and finally managed to defeat their two great foes, the Hungarians and the Durazzos. However, their marriage had failed to produce a surviving heir, meaning that the kingdom's future was still uncertain, and her two brothers-in-law, Robert and Philip of Taranto, still posed a threat. Without an heir, and now in her mid-thirties, not to mention internal and external threats needing a strong military commander, she needed to find a new husband, and fast. She wasn't exactly lacking for suitors. The ruling family of Milan was keen, but the strongest suit came from the King of France, who lobbied for his youngest son, and that bid had the support of the new Pope, Urban V. However, Joanna was not on board. She feared that marriage to a French prince would threaten Neapolitan independence, but it was not easy to reject the wishes of her two staunchest allies. She argued that she was too closely related in blood to the French royal family for the marriage to be legal in the eyes of God, but this didn't deter the Pope. He put pressure on her, saying that rejecting France was a bad idea, to which she retorted, quote, The decision to marry is free, and I can't see why this should be no longer the case at the expense of my freedom. I beg your holiness, as respectfully as I can, to forgive my thoughtlessness for my excessive and possibly offensive words, but this is a topic which incites me to express my thoughts undiminished. I have taken such counsel in this that my posterity will be fully preserved in the blood of my royal house, and I would rather die than pass it on to other nations. In fact, she had already made her choice. Remember, she had been partially raised by her step-grandmother, Sancha of Majorca, while Sancha's great-nephew was King James IV of Majorca. She had met him for the first time while at Avignon, when he was 12 years old. He had been with his father at the time, whom the Aragonais had deposed. In return for supporting her during the trial, Joanna provided the Mallorcans with men and ships, but the expedition ended in disaster. James's father was killed, making him king, but he himself was captured and spent the next 14 years in an iron cage. Literally an iron cage. He had recently escaped that captivity, probably with Joanna's help, and seemed to be the perfect match for her. First, he was already a king in his own right, so would not be jealous of her position. Second, his main goal was to regain his own kingdom, and not take hers. Third, at 27 years old, he was the perfect age to give her children and lead her armies. And finally, as a relation of the former Queen of Naples, he was of the right family and pedigree. Tick, 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 tick. And it was an excellent match for James as well. Joanna was eminently desirable, both in terms of her beauty and her realm, and her troops could be very handy in retaking his island kingdom. Joanna successfully lobbied Pope Urban, who approved the marriage in a papal bull in February 1363. 
However, once James arrived in Naples that summer, Joanna realised she may have chosen very poorly indeed. To put it simply, spending 14 of his most formative years trapped in an iron cage had taken a significant toll on both his physical and mental health. He caught malaria pretty much immediately on arrival, and only just survived his first few months, but of greater concern was his mental illness. He would become enraged at the drop of a hat and could become very violent. He immediately disregarded his agreement not to interfere in his wife's rule and demanded to be given a rule in ruling the kingdom. The Archbishop of Naples described these episodes in a letter to the Pope. Quote, the Queen, even though like the dead from his conduct to her, has not had the courage to reveal it to others, and told me only with great effort. She fears the king as her husband and dreads him as the devil. Not only did his lengthy incarceration affect the soundness of his mind, but also because he is, according to the doctors, eccentric like nature and like mad, which his words and deeds, alas, show only too much. In particular, we have not been able to convince him to sleep in a separate bed from the Queen's, considering his impairment, and despite his serious fits of fever, his heavy sweating, his enemas, and other inconveniences. Joanna really could pick him, eh? He even invited some mercenary companies to come and attack Naples, their assault only prevented by heavy snows in the winter of 1364. In January of that year, he physically assaulted his wife in front of the whole court, an attack that caused Joanna to write a long letter to the Pope. She wrote, quote, Eight days after I had joined my spouse in matrimony, he began to engage in insane behaviours. After several days affected with a fit of fever, he carried out outrageous deeds, such that, on the doctor's advice, I have removed from his room the weapons, stones, wooden clubs, and all such objects that he could lay his hands on. Later, and as a result of the familiarity caused by more intimate association, I began to notice that every month he would have an outbreak of madness, with some clear-sighted moments at intervals. Most recently, at the last change of the moon, one morning, suddenly, like a lunatic grinding his teeth, he began to say he had intended to be the master and a great reformer of the justice of the kingdom, and that I should immediately present to him a report on all the pensions and privileges, as he wanted to know all. So here Joanna is describing not only the symptoms of his mental illness, but also his desire to interfere in governance. She continued, quote, I agreed, so as to contain his madness, and to please him, against the advice I had been given, gave the order to provide him with this report. Abusing my good intentions and my kindness, he took an arrogant tone, and said all the beneficiaries of whatever privileges had been granted from as far back as one could remember until today should be deprived of these without delay. She apparently explained to him that not only was this unwise, but that he had no right to do this, whereupon he became very angry. Quote, Bearing my answer with great impatience, he answered as he had done often publicly, with many gestures of contempt, that if he could be the lord and master, he would never relinquish this power, either for the Pope or for the Church, as he didn't care to obey them. I asked him what he would dare do. He answered that he would even strike the body of Christ with a knife. She then described the assault she endured. And, just to warn you, this won't be an easy lesson. Quote, Throwing himself impetuously at me, he seized me by the arms in the presence of several witnesses who thought I might fall to the ground. 
Even those these witnesses were many, I bore with extreme patience the insult that was made to me. And so nothing worse could ensue, I expressly ordered that no one move, failing to give the impression that he hadn't done this with evil intent, but for amusement, and that he hadn't intended to pull me so violently. He turned to me and indulged in insults slanderous to my reputation, saying out loud that I had killed my husband, that I was a worthless courtesan, and that his revenge would be exemplary. She then says that her former enemy, Robert of Taranto, was so concerned for her safety that he sent his wife and family members to protect her and convened a council to decide what to do about the Mad King. Joanna finishes, quote, Finally, we decided my lord and husband and I would never meet alone in a bed or a room until we could fully determine what needed to be done to ensure my safety. This is entirely tragic, and anyone with any experience living with a violent person may easily recognise some of what Joanna is saying. It is fair to say here that we are only getting one half of the story, but there is a tremendous amount of truth, sadness and fear dripping from the pages and pages that she sent to Avignon. That Robert of Taranto, consistently one of her greatest opponents, should come to her rescue, shows just how seriously Neapolitans considered having a mad king could be. And of course, not being able to be alone with her husband made it very difficult for her to achieve the main aim of her marriage, that is, to become pregnant and bear an heir. And her biological clock was ticking. The longer she had to wait, the less likely it would be to happen at all. Things weren't just difficult at home, as her greatest foreign policy triumph, the recovery of Sicily, was now under threat. Now I'm going to simplify this as best I can, as it is hideously complicated. But basically, while she still claimed the title of Queen of Sicily, she knew she didn't have the manpower or money to fully reconquer the island. So she was willing to let the boy king Frederick stay on the throne, so long as he married one of her sister's daughters. That way the title would eventually come back into the Neapolitan family and away from the crown of Naples. Joanna's sister had two available daughters, both from her first marriage to Charles of Durazzo. Joanna wanted to marry the youngest, Margaret, but Frederick instead wanted the eldest, also conveniently called Joanna, but that I will call Joan for convenience. The reason he wanted this was because Joan was the eldest daughter, and therefore heir to the throne of Naples once Joanna and her sister died, and was a wealthy heiress in her own right. However, Joan had been previously promised in marriage to the nephew of Joanna's strongest ally in Avignon, Cardinal Guy. His great rival, Cardinal Talleyrand, was Joan's great uncle, and he had no intention of letting this happen. And just to tie a bow on this absolute mess of a situation, Joan herself didn't want to marry either of these men. Guy's nephew was poor, and Sicily was such a giant mess that she wanted no part of it. Joanna was furious at her niece's obstinacy, and when Joan began to engage in some backroom shenanigans, she took decisive action. Joanna arrested her niece's allies, and was on the brink of getting her to agree to the marriage, when Cardinal Talleyrand died, meaning the Pope turned on a dime and now insisted that Joan marry Cardinal Guy's nephew. This threw everything into chaos, and completely distracted the Neapolitans, giving the Aragonese faction on the island a chance to strike. Their forces retook Messina and threw Joanna's men off the island, ending her brief reconquest. The recriminations of this disaster were quick to appear. 
Joanna and the Neapolitan elite blamed Avignon for its interference, and Joan was quickly married off, without papal blessing, to another Spanish prince. But things weren't all bad, as in 1365, despite all the odds, Joanna became pregnant again. The sources aren't clear if sex with her husband had to be supervised, but clearly it was successful. At 39, this was probably her last chance to produce a natural heir, and everyone was extremely excited. However, only a few months later, this all turned to disappointment, when she miscarried. We don't have any detail of Joanna's reaction to this, but it must have been a terrible blow. Quite apart from the normal trauma of a miscarriage, Joanna now knew that her marriage to an ill, violent husband was all for naught. This had been her last chance for an heir. And now, for the rest of her time on the throne, the spectre of a succession would hang ever closer over her head. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.